Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Peter Brook was one of the greatest theatrical directors of the 20th century, and in the 21st century, he continues to create illuminating work. As artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company for 20 years, from 1962 to 82, he transformed how we all look at Shakespeare's work. A revolutionary spirit, his English-language adaptation of the persecution and assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade, otherwise known as Marat Sade, was a legendary theatrical breakthrough. It became one of his films, along with a brilliant adaptation of William Golding's Lord of the Flies, as well as King Lear, starring Paul Schofield. I had a chance to talk with another visionary director, Simon McBurney, in San Francisco at the Curran, for his own work, The Encounter, about Peter Brook. Peter Brook is a master, but if I say that he's a master of theatre, that suggests a closed, achieved entity. What is most remarkable about him and his life is this refusal to accept anything that he does as fixed and finished. He is in a constant state of search and research and redefinition, almost as if his theatre itself was part of his own movement through life. And as he himself has said, there is only one question ultimately about theatre, regardless of its form, and how you do it, and even the subject matter. The question is, is it alive? As his work has gone on, one of the most remarkable aspects of it is to suggest the life of the theatre in ever more simpler and essential forms, almost in a way that reflects the movement of his own body as he moves to a point where he moves less and less. So his theatre reflects something of that own personal voyage in the simpler and simpler gestures and plots and word forms to suggest the maximum of possibilities. The full interview with Simon McBurney can be heard as a Bay Area Theatre podcast at kpfa.org. During the 1970s, Peter Brook, along with writer Jean-Claude Carrière, began working on a theatrical adaptation of the Indian epic, the Mahabharata. Joining Brook in that endeavor was Marie Elaine Estienne, and it culminated in a nine-hour theatrical piece first performed in a rock quarry and later turned into a television miniseries. Now Peter Brook and Marie Elaine Estienne return to the Mahabharata with the theatrical piece Battlefield, 
which examined some of the same themes in a different way. Peter Brook, at the age of 92, is still sharp, still focused, and still revolutionary in his thought. I spoke with Peter Brook at the ACT offices on April 24, 2017. Before we go back and talk a little bit about the earlier production of Mahabharata, let's talk a little about Battlefield. What made you decide to come back to it and when? We didn't come back to it despite ourselves. It came back to us, and it came back to us because all the themes that were there several thousands of years ago gradually, gradually have become more and more acute until at this moment in our history, they are there, and there's no difference between the terrible conflicts, conflicts starting within one family. It's unbelievable that it could start between brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, who, for reasons that are all like Cain and Abel, the reasons are not important. It is the horror of a family not being able to transcend its differences. And that spreads in the Mahabharata into a giant war of massacre and destruction like so many we've known ourselves and which may be looming on the horizon at this minute. So that if in the work that one does in the theater, like the work that you do in journalism, in reporting, is that our job is to feel each day this endlessly moving kaleidoscope of the word around us. And when that happens, then we look at subjects, we talk about them, we discuss them. That is all just like in a kitchen, preparing the ingredients. And then suddenly the moment comes, and that's why I say it is the Mahabharata itself. Certain themes were not this time trying respectfully to present with all that one can do with acting, with decor, with color, with movement and music, to give for the first time outside India, which is what we did so many years ago, a taste of what this great epic, this world masterpiece was, which was unknown to anyone but scholars until the day came when we found this was something that must come out of India. It belongs to all of humanity. Now, today, our aim is not that. Our aim is there are one or two themes in it, one or two human situations that are so close to the situations of so many of us today that it became evident this is much better than doing a new play inventing a play ourselves, all the different things we've done. This insisted, and that's why I say we didn't choose it, but life put it on our path, and we couldn't do other than accept it. How did life put it back on your path? I mean, did either you or Marie-Helene Estienne suddenly say, wait a moment, we have this? No, no. It's a little simpler than that. If you have plunged into this, you know, our version, nine-hour version, was enormous simplification of 18 volumes of Sanskrit. If you've once been drenched in this, you can't shake it off. So that it's 
there as a reference within us, as for me the whole works of Shakespeare are. But there comes a moment when you're not thinking about it, but it's so close to the surface that with Maria Len, at a certain moment, we began to say, this is close to us. This could today, but perhaps it's impossible. Let's see how. So we went back to the work, started reading again, looked at books we had underlined, certain passages from 30 years ago, 40 years ago. We came back to that, and gradually, like a plant, it grew. It grew into something that's just a little bit more than an hour. At least that's what it was in New York and London. You spoke before about the two themes that gradually rose to the surface that became so clear. Can you go a little more into what you mean by those two themes and how you pointed at those in particular for today's political and social life? It's not a tract. It's not didactic. That's why it's so valuable to be able to prepare people to say it's not a spectacle, it's not a show. But certain things, such as when you have had a conflict, as we have everywhere in the world, leading to massacres, to leading to genocide, and if you have been in a commanding position, you have been responsible, the president of a country, the general in charge, and you see that in everyday terms you've won. It's exactly like, with, if I dare say it here, like with election. Everyone, after an election, they're doing this today in France, they're all celebrating, we have won. Not recognizing that we have won is just the first step in an enormous responsibility. You see hundreds of people, and in these wars, thousands, even in the terms of the Mahabharata, they talk of millions of corpses. And one person in the end, the commanding general, the king, is finally responsible. He could have stopped it. He could have not opposed the other side. No, he felt it was impossible to do that. He had to go on to win. Now, what is the world that you now have won this for? And here... As with elections, the real task, it's not enough to talk of a hundred days, the real endless searching and questioning, what is our responsibility now? What is it to make a new world? Can one avoid it by saying, no, that's for someone else? The great Mahabharata, one couldn't resist feeling that while the big war is the great climax of it, we're following all the steps that can lead to a Holocaust. Now we're exploring something that was already there in the full version, but never fully developed, which is this question, when you have won, now what? There's a line, I understand, where the prince of the Pandava family says, victory is a defeat. Yes. That's a great, great, simple line all great lines everywhere are so simple and carry so much. And to recognize that a victory, just what I've been saying, the next day you don't sit down tapping everyone, all your comrades on the back, getting drunk. You drink for a moment the night before, and now you wake up and life starts again. 
And I've felt this all my life because I've lived through and seen so many revolutions. And I've felt the tragedy of revolutions. There is a reason for it. The people are oppressed. The king in the French Revolution, the Tsar in Russia, that the people will rise up and say, no, we can't go on with this. And then there is again, with every revolution, the next morning. And that is not sufficiently lived, respected, faced. A victory is not a victory. It's a defeat in the sense that all the theories, all the beautiful promises are all wiped away. It's a defeat for all naive hopes. Now, the real challenge is there. Marx started a ball rolling, and he started it, and it touched people, young people, idealistic people all over the world. He gave it the first push with a brilliantly clear analysis that nobody else had dared of the whole monetary system of the world. That started something. By the time it became a burning thing, we must now make the revolution. And then in Russia, it broke up into two parties, the Bolsheviks with Lenin at heart saying, we must win cost by cost, whatever the bloodshed, we must win. And the Mensheviks who said, we will lose all our ideals if we put bloodshed before humanity. Even the word Menshevik, very few people know it anymore. But the Bolsheviks and Lenin was there. And Leninism led step by step to Stalin. Was that inevitable because of that decision to put bloodshed above humanity? You mustn't put to me questions that you know I can't answer. <laughs> On the contrary, these are very, very great questions. And that's the reason why we're opening this work again, because it doesn't give you the answers, but it makes the questions burn inside you. And as long as they're there, you can perhaps take a better path than if you sit back comfortably and say, now nah, all's going to be well. Peter Brook, you began directing in 1943. What I read is that you were influenced by Artaud and then later by Joan Littlewood in your directing. Were you always looking at theater from a political point of view? Is that how you viewed Shakespeare? All of that, I'm afraid, is completely false. Completely false. I felt early on that we're just tiny little fragments in an enormous field that we know nothing about. And so my very first understanding for myself was not being able to understand how racism could exist. It seemed to me that we're all part of one big incomprehensible pattern, and why the hell should somebody who belongs to another culture, has another color, is brought up in a different surrounding, a different religion, why should he be better than me, born in London, with all the advantages of British education and English university, why should that give me anything? No, it gives me something. And there I saw from that that we live, you and my, me, at this very moment as we're talking, we're living in a field of influences and that we must recognize with humility and openness nothing is better 
them to receive influences and perhaps be the passage for other people to be influenced. Then it's up to us to discriminate. And when I started working in the theater, my first influence was the influence of reacting against a very famous British theater, the West End of London, marvelous actors, marvelous quality of work, until one saw that this was all the middle classes, the comfortable middle classes could want. And then you saw what I wrote very rapidly in a book after that I called The Deadly Theater. But a deadly theater is something that doesn't go beyond pleasing at all costs its rich customers. And you put the poorer ones and the most enthusiastic ones as far away from the actors as possible against the whole tradition of the theater from Greece to Shakespeare, when on the contrary, the people closest to the actors were the whores, the pickpockets, the dangerous criminals were all mixing with the normal average people all in one crowd, as in a crowd today, not the rich. And for me at that point, what influenced me was getting out of this comfortable, high quality, because the bourgeoisie here in England, in France, had enormously good taste. So the best furniture, the best pictures, the best music was subsidized by them. But to me, this has nothing to do with an attempt to touch something truer and deeper. And so for that, I was open and very touched by many, many people of which people leapt onto the word Arto, because Arto was a man who burned with his feeling that there is something more than what is being presented, and he suffered. When we started within the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, after doing many productions there, I had the position of being able to insist that I was given a little group of my own purely to do research, which nobody had ever thought was a word that came into the theatre. And with that, we started for the first time, and I had on the phone earlier today one of the first members, which is Glenda Jackson, was a magnificent part of that tiny team of people who were touched by the thought that there is another theatre beyond the comfortable, cosy, middle-class comedies and dramas that everybody loved because they were so well done. With this group, we started a long series, many, many weeks, highly suspected by everyone in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre who said, what the hell do you think they're doing? These people were just... But trying to explore for ourselves what are we looking for? What makes an actor? What is the difference between an actor and a non-actor? What is a theme that can touch many people? And these were unanswerable questions which we could only open by improvisation, trying things out, looking at other sources, inventing things. And then we felt that after a few weeks we had to have an audience. We knew that this was just pure masturbation for ourselves. If it wasn't put to the test, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Somebody must test whether there's any sense whatsoever and any meaning in what we're trying to do. So we were given a little room in a small drama school 
in Kensington. And we thought we can invite people and we'll give a little series of performances. And for that, we needed a name. And we named it the Theatre of Cruelty because the phrase cruelty comes right from Arto. The price I pay for that is that here, 50 years later, <laughs> I'm associated as somebody who's done everything in the name of Arto. Love Arto, <laughs> but that's far from being true. During those 20 years with the RSC, this was going on and you were still doing productions of Shakespeare. Yeah. Were these other productions, were they also Shakespeare? Were they different playwrights? No, I felt, and I feel this today, but in any field, one must taste and explore all the different things. So at that time, and I'm very happy to have done that, I did farces, I did light comedies, I did one comedy in the West End of London about an income tax collector who comes to visit someone who thinks it's somebody else until he suddenly discovers to his horror that it's a man come to see him about his taxes, all that sort of thing. And gradually out of that, I could feel that everything, that the crudest, this is the basis of Shakespeare, the crudest popular farce, the crudest jokes, the real sex jokes are everywhere in Shakespeare as the support for things that go higher and higher until he leads one for a moment to the highest level of thought like a great, great philosopher, but beyond that, because it's human, it's in human behavior, and he knows that you can't leave people on a mountain peak for too long. You have to come down again. And this I discovered by everything. I didn't want to take anything for granted. That's, I think, my life in a nutshell. Not taking things for granted, not taking things because anybody, even Arto has told you that, but t try test, trial and error. That brings in the notion of being able to set Shakespeare, let's say, in a different era, just to see what will emerge? No. These are easy. Today, we see everywhere, because Shakespeare is, to me, the greatest of all dramatists, and it's not my theory, it's not for nothing, that there isn't a part of the world yeah. where he isn't played, respected in a million different ways and different languages. The fact remains that his 36 plays, in India they say Mahabharata, what isn't in the Mahabharata doesn't exist anywhere. And I would say the same for Shakespeare. If you take his work as a whole, it is incredible. To waste time and say, who was this guy? This is, again, a sort of game, an academic game, by which academics earn their living and can write books, and somebody else can write a second book saying, he's got it wrong, and that chain goes on forever. But it's meaningless. All that we can say is, who cares who this guy was? What matters is this monument that's there, and it's a living monument which we can enter, which we can climb, which we can live in again and again and again now. In one of my great fights, if I come back for a moment to my own career, simultaneously with Shakespeare and with the opera, was the heavy hand of tradition. There is the true tradition, which is something that we find in the Bible, in Islam, and in Hinduism, in Buddhism. This is a true living tradition beyond us. But the heavy hand 
of the tradition which says, and I lived this in opera, of a singer saying to me, oh no, you can't do it that way. Look at the score Puccini wrote that he wants this. Fuck that. This isn't alive. So with that, there's been always attempts to get out of it. One attempt in opera and in Shakespeare was to change the period, just to refresh the image. In the, my first production, Love Labored Last, I broke away from the heavy hand of the usual Shakespeare costume and did it in the costumes of Watteau, the golden age of Watteau, which was a completely different imagery that people hadn't seen, and it freed something. To this day, plays are put on by directors who feel very strongly that something deep can come to the surface if you use this analogy of another. But it's full of dangers, because the danger, and particularly for young directors, is to think that modernizing is just using modern gadgets. And again and again and again, you see productions of Shakespeare where people are walking around with cell phones, that makes it contemporary, which is nonsense, and using video and using recordings, all of which can. At this moment, you're going to have Simon McBurney here, who has done fantastic work and has incorporated into his work everything, video and sound and recordings and sound effects, all that whole world he has brought. In the same way Lepage has done that, these are real, fine, sensitive, and deeply feeling people who have a total respect for the quality of a tradition and the need to renew it all the time. But the opposite is the easy way out. Oh, yes, we'll make it modern. Peter Brook, you left the Royal Shakespeare Company and you began looking at the Mahabharata. Had that been something that was in your consciousness that you were finally able to work on once you were free of the company? The first question. The second question which is related, is that uh, one of the ideas these days going around is cultural appropriation, which in this case, of course, means somebody from the British Empire looking at Indian work. It's a load of shit. I know lots of Indians who say, this is our masterpiece, and what are you colonialists doing and touching it? Which the simple answer is, this, until we touched it, was unknown outside India. It doesn't belong to you. If it touches people everywhere, it belongs to humanity. You, nobody has said to you, Shakespeare, you've no right to do it. And Shakespeare, every culture in the world has today very rapidly used and played Shakespeare in a million different ways. And no, nobody from England, as far as I know, has ever said, ah, you're stealing our masterpiece. I brought that actual response to a friend of mine whose response was, well, yes, but when you're talking about the colonial power versus that which is colonialized, the power dynamic changes. Oh, but of course, I mean, but we don't have to start here discussing the horror of colonialism. There are horrors. Racism is still with us. It's a horror. It's a human tragedy and a human perversion, and it's really something we must see with horror. Colonialism takes many more secret and subtle forms, but it's another horror, and we just must recognize it. But to, again, get glued to the forms it takes and think that 
that is colonialism. One's missing the whole meaning today, and that's why, to answer your first part of your question, two things apply to that. First of all, my feeling that working in England, and England always being insular, as we see at this moment with Brexit, England always is closed in on itself and its own culture, and I felt this is not enough. We must not go to steal them, but on the contrary, invite together people from many cultures, many races, many languages. This wasn't at all appropriate for England at the time. And I went to Paris because in those days, Paris was like a melting pot where in great composers, painters like Picasso, people from all parts could come together and I could start the first international group in Paris. And that's how all that started, which was just to go beyond this sense that any relation with another culture is from our own superiority. It's from the feeling that we desperately need something beyond our understanding to know more. Simultaneously, in London, all the little group that I was working with, writers, musicians, actors, after many years we'd done the Marassad together, we'd worked a long time together, and we felt painfully that the horrors of the Vietnam War were such that we had to make something ourselves because we felt that London was too cozy, too comfortable, and just saying, oh, it's the American problem. So we did this something, you know, called US, which means us, to show that this is for all of us. It isn't comfortably saying it's them, the Americans, who've got it wrong. It's the same feeling that we're all part of one jigsaw puzzle. It was in doing that that somebody brought me a little manuscript in which, for the first time, I saw a reference for the Mahabharata about the general about to start this massive war of extermination with his own family lined up facing him. And this man said, this doesn't make sense. I am not going to give the signal to start this war. And he then steps down from his chariot and the driver, who is actually the god Krishna, said, listen, no man can avoid action. And he then gave this other great jewel of humanity, the Bhagavad Gita, which is the meaning for all of us of action, what it is to feel this is too horrible, we must step out of it and then see one can't. One is part of that movement and one must search for right action. And once I discovered that, I thought I must now learn what this big work out of which this comes. What is this war? What's this all about? And that led me step by step to becoming interested in something called the Mahabharata, interested my close colleague, the writer Jean-Claude Carrière. We both listened to a great Sanskrit scholar in Paris telling us night after night more and more of the stories until in the end we felt now we must drop everything and devote. And in fact, it was 10 years in which I had to work to keep us all going, keep the fiat going, doing all sorts of other plays. But the aim, and we did the Conference of the Birds as again a stepping stone to this tremendous challenge, for which, of course, what we did was just touching respectfully the outside of it, but that's all we could do, and that's how we came to the Mahabharata. 
To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>